0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th. And it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose. And I think a little fear. I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. <sighs> it's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out Two, rated PG, parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now.
2: My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the Revolution, to fractious Civil War, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century.
1: Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify.
2: Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of history. My name is Steve Suman. Today's story is The Greatest Escape Ever. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. For today's question of the day, I thought I'd ask you about classic TV shows. I've been watching a lot of them over the summer, and I noticed that one famous long-running show began the title of each of its episodes with the words, The Big. It began with the words, The Big. And here are some examples. The Big Infant, The Big Pill, The Big Girl, and The Big Mama. Those really are names of some of their episodes. So which of the following shows began the title of each episode with the words The Big. And I'll give you six of them in alphabetical order. Was it one, All in the Family, two, Bonanza, three, Cops, four, Dragnet, five, Gunsmoke, or six, MASH? Again, which of the following TV shows began the title of each episode with the words The Big? Was it one, All in the Family, two, Bonanza, three, Cops, four, Dragnet, five, Gunsmoke, or six, MASH? MASH. As usual, I'll leave in suspense until the end of this podcast to find out the answer. And now for today's story that I've titled, The Greatest Escape Ever, and that's with a question mark. Uh, And I should tell you that I recently watched a Nova documentary on the famous Great Escape of World War II. And uh, maybe you've seen the movie with Steve McQueen and others, but my wife made the comment to me that I'm a sucker for a good survival story. And that really is true. But I explained to her that The Great Escape Which was an excellent story, wasn't my favorite. I knew of a much better one. It's one that is truly unforgettable to those that have heard it, but oddly, I know very few people that have. And it's the story of Slavomir Ravich and his great escape from a Soviet prison camp. Now, this story is both astonishing and almost unbelievable at the same time. And if you know the story, uh, I encourage you to listen to the end because there are some updates you may not have heard of uh, that have occurred recently. Let me first start by uh, giving you a little background on Slavomir, or Slav for short. Uh, he was a well educated man, he attended school to be both an architect and a surveyor. Uh, And while he resided in Poland, he did speak fluent Russian. That's because his mother uh, was of Russian descent. Uh, He was also married, but to say he was married wouldn't be quite fair. He was just barely married. And that's because his wedding to Vera occurred on July 5th, 1939, while he was on a 48 hour leave from the Polish cavalry. Uh, And before the celebration was over, he received his orders uh, to return back uh, to his unit. And now he did see his wife on and off for a little bit here and there over the next few weeks but believe it or not that would be the entire amount for the rest of his life let's jump ahead to november 19 1939 It's about four months later and it's an incredibly important date in slav's life that's because he was home again in pinks in poland on a short leave from the military and his mom who was incredibly happy to have him home decided to have a celebration in his honor Now, just as Slav was about to talk to his wife for the first time in a while, the Soviet secret police burst in and arrested him on the spot and accused him of being a spy. Now, the charges against Slav were incredibly vague and would never, ever hold up in a court of law today. The assumption was that he had to be a spy simply because he was an educated man that spoke Russian, lived near the Russian border, and was enlisted in an army that was an enemy of the Russian state. Therefore, he must be a spy. Now, let's just say that the Soviet secret police were not nice at all. Uh, in fact, they subjected him to all types of horrendous torture. That included water droplets on the forehead, you know, physical beatings that would be expected, lit cigarettes on the back of the hand, and you know, just so much more—really bad stuff. The thing that I found the worst was that Slav was forced to live in his own filth most of the time. There were no bathroom facilities, and he was not allowed to shower. So basically, he had to live in you-know-what. I'll, I'll let you fill in the uh, blanks there. And this is all because he refused to sign a document stating the fact that he was a spy. He wasn't, so why would he sign the document? But one day, they fed him some fish. That was laced with some sort of drug, and of course, while he was under its influence, he unknowingly signed the confession. Now that they uh, had a signed confession, I'm not sure why they even bothered with a trial, but they did have one, and it supposedly lasted four days. And during the trial, they accused him of being a Polish spy, a Polish traitor, a Polish fascist, and so on you know, just insult after insult. To make it even worse, at one point, the prosecutor in the case smacked him across the face four different times and accused him of being a professional liar. At the end of the trial, of course, they produced his signed document, the one that he signed while he was drugged, and of course, they sentenced him to a long prison term. They gave him 25 years of hard labor. It's hard to believe, but he had been in prison about one year at this point, and he had been denied any form of human contact. That's when he was brought into the Lubyanka prison yard and realized that there were about 150 other men in the same condition. They had all been treated the same way. At that point, they were herded onto trucks and ultimately locked into railroad cattle cars. Each train was locked from the outside, and the prisoners traveled in complete darkness without toilets or any heat for the next 3000 miles. Now keep in mind this is the dead of winter and that you know they only had their thin prison clothing to protect them from the intense Siberian cold. After traveling for about a month in December of 1940 the train just suddenly came to a stop. At that point the men were ordered off and they marched for 5 miles through the snow until they got to a potato field. There they met up with a whole bunch of other men about 5000 in total it's estimated. And they were forced to spend three days in the cold, wind, and snow. They thought that they finally had a little bit of luck when a train arrived loaded with warm winter jackets, winter trousers, and rubberized boots, you know, some protection against the cold. Now, while this was initially interpreted as a good thing, it turns out it was not. That's because the men were handcuffed to a long chain. 50 men per side, 100 men per chain, and they were pulled by a truck at about 4 miles per hour across Siberia. At one point, the trucks even got bogged down in the snow and the chains were pulled by sleds with reindeer. They arrived at their destination during the first week of February, having walked for some two months and covering about a 1,000 miles in distance. The prisoners were now at Camp Number 303, or 303, uh, which was about three to four hundred miles south of the Arctic Circle. This is a really, really cold, windy place to be. Now, upon entering the camp, they encountered a thousand Finns that had arrived previously, but there was just one big problem: that is, there was no place for anyone to sleep. There was now 5,500 prisoners there, and no barracks at all. So, of course, the prisoners were quickly put to work constructing some 20 buildings that could sleep 300 prisoners per building. Of course, all the prisoners were immediately given jobs, and Slav was no exception. He initially worked as a forest worker to cut down trees to build the camp, but after one month, he volunteered to make skis for Russian soldiers. Now, this assignment brought with it two highly prized bonuses. First, he was working in the ski shop, which was heated, you know, think about it, you're, you've, been mar- you've been out in the cold for so long and now you're working in a heated uh, you know, workshop. And second, by volunteering to do this, his daily allotment of bread jumped from 400 grams a day to 1,000 grams. And that will actually become important later on in the story. Then one day, the commandant of the base, a guy named Colonel Yushikov, came into the ski shop and asked if any of the prisoners knew how to fix his Telefunken radio. No one stepped forward, so Slav decided to offer his services. He wasn't really sure he could fix the radio, but he did own a telefunken uh, when he lived back in Poland. As surprising as it may seem, knowing how to fix a radio would prove to be the turning point in Slavomir's 25-year sentence. You see, upon entering Colonel Yushikov's residence, Slav met his wife Maria, who was the only woman on the base. In fact, she was the first woman he had seen since being arrested nearly 18 months earlier. The colonel and his wife treated him surprisingly well while he was working on the radio. Uh, Slav quickly figured out what was wrong with the radio, but he opted to drag out his repair so that he'd be called back several times. Now Slav's conversations with the couple uh, led him to the conclusion that they were also prisoners in a sense. Think about it. One didn't end up running a prison camp in Siberia for no reason at all. During one of the repair sessions, only Maria was present, and she asked Slav if he had ever contemplated escape. Now, it was something he had thought about constantly, but her question caught him off guard, and he provided no immediate answer. Now, she apologized on his next visit, but he decided to continue the conversation in the abstract. Slav pointed out that escape was impossible, and that's because of the isolation of the camp in the Siberian tundra. Think about it. They're in the middle of nowhere, a cold nowhere. But if he ever did escape, he would probably head 600 miles due east to Kamchatka and then hop a boat to Japan and hopefully freedom, of course. Now, Maria pointed out that this would be a very bad move, and that's because at the time, the Kamchatka coast was heavily fortified and he was sure to be captured. So he then suggested he would sneak aboard a train headed westward and work in the Ural Mines until a later date. But again, the colonel's wife pointed out that this would be impossible because of the difficulties in obtaining both travel and work permits during the war. So let's see, they ruled out heading east, they ruled out heading west. Obviously, going north towards the pole made no sense, so the only option was to escape towards the south. Maria offered Slav the following suggestions for his escape. First, that he would need a small number of the fittest and most enterprising men for the journey. Second, that he should save one quarter of his daily bread allowance each day and dry it at the back of the ski shop on the stove. Third, skins would be needed for clothing and footwear, obviously to keep warm. And she knew that the officers hung their skins to dry on the outer wire of the camp. So if one pelt were grabbed each day, the officers would probably never notice. The fourth point she made was that they should leave at night during a heavy snowstorm, and that's because the falling snow would cover their tracks. Now, the camp did not have electricity, so there were no lights to spot them immediately. Now, she did offer to provide to make them sacks to carry their supplies in, but most importantly, most significantly, was that she added that the cur- added that the colonel would be leaving on a trip very shortly. Slavomir realized that it was now or never. He found six other men and they started planning their escape in late March of 1941. Now, the prisoners at the camp were allowed to move freely between the barracks, so they all arranged to get their bunks near the front of hut number one, which was closest to their escape route. Now, their supplies were minimal and primitive at best. They had moccasins and hats that they crudely made from the fur that they had stolen. They also had a 12-inch by 3-inch knife that they made from a broken saw blade. They also collected pieces of flint that they used to light a sponge-like fungus called gubka, which they intended to use to start fires. And lastly, Maria provided the men with an axe head for which they uh, fashioned a wooden handle. Finally, on April 6, Maria pointed out that the colonel had gone to Yakutsk. Now, she provided Slob with seven bags, and each bag contained a flat loaf of bread, a little flour, five pounds of pearl barley, some salt, four to five ounces of tobacco, and some old newspaper. Now, being naive and a non-smoker, I thought that the newspaper was for starting fires. I didn't realize that it was intended to roll cigarettes. The men decided that they would make their break for freedom three days later, a night during which the snow began piling up, just as they had planned. They left at midnight after the camp settled down, when everyone was asleep. The snow, in fact, was so heavy that the guard towers were not visible in the slightest. And their long journey began. I think if they had realized how long it would be, they probably would have turned back. Now, about 100 yards from the hut door was their first obstacle. It was a row of coiled, barbed wire, not the kind of stuff you like to mess with. But they had previously noted that the wire didn't follow the exact contour of the ground, so they picked the spot where it had the greatest clearance, and they crawled underneath it. Next, they had to clear a 6-foot-deep, dry moat that surrounded the camp. Because if you think about it, you wouldn't put water into the moat because that would turn to ice and make escape even easier. Now, the tallest member of of the group, a guy named Anastasi Kalamenos, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. Anyway, Kalamenos jumped into the pit, and the rest used him as a stepping stone. And of course, once they all cleared the pit, they pulled him
1: out. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money.
2: And between the two walls was a footpath that was used by the patrol guards. And again, Calameno's height proved advantageous. That's because the other men were all able to climb up on his shoulders and pull themselves up on top of the timber wall. But then they encountered another coil of barbed wire. And they actually cleared that much more easily than you would think. And that's because they simply jumped over the coil of wire and into the bank of snow that had built up on the footpath. And then they repeated this procedure for the second wall and the third coil of barbed wire, and believe it or not, they were now free men. Of course, they were far from civilization and there was the risk of getting caught, but they were free men, at least for now. Surprisingly, there was absolutely no sign of pursuit, yet they knew that they needed to keep moving quickly. And for the next five days, they traveled only under the cover of night covering about 30 miles each day, and they didn't dare light a fire because that may uh, indicate their location, of course, would mean that they would get caught. As you would expect, every day they pushed farther and farther south, and they made Lake Baikal, the deepest lake in the world, by mid-May, but there they also encountered another surprise— they ran into a 17-year-old girl named Kristina Polanska. She was a Polish girl that had escaped from a Western Siberia work farm after the foreman had tried to rape her. And ultimately, she joined the seven men on their escape to freedom. They finally crossed the Russian mongolian border during the second week of June, having covered an estimated 1,200 miles in 60 days. That's quite the haul. They now had little fear of recapture, but they knew that they needed to keep going. And they decided that their final destination would be India because it was under British control at the time, and they knew that would mean absolute freedom. Unfortunately, they were not familiar with what lay in front of them. With no water and very little food, all eight entered, get this, the Gobi Desert. And they ran out of food on the fifth day. But lucky, this is really lucky, they encountered a small oasis on the seventh day, which of course provided them with much-needed food and water. On their twelfth day in the Gobi, Christina fell unconscious twice, and they noticed that her legs were incredibly swollen. Sadly, she died the next day and was buried in the desert. Then on their seventeenth day, the same thing happened to one of the men. A 37-year-old Polish army captain named Sigmund Mikowski also died they were clearly dying from the lack of food and water now luckily some mud was spotted on the 20th day and they were able to extract the water by dipping the edge of their sack into the mud soaking the water up and then putting in their mouths and sucking the water out of the cloth but they still had no food all they had seen during their entire trek through the desert was the occasional snake And then, for some reason, I don't know why they didn't think of this before, someone came with the bright idea, let's capture and eat the snakes. So they spent the next three weeks capturing the occasional snake and eating it for nourishment. And then they left the desert after about 30 days, and unfortunately, the loss of two lives. It took the remaining men an additional three months to cover an estimated 1,500 miles of the Chinese province of Kanchu and Tibet, which brought them to the biggest obstacle of them all, that is the Himalayan Mountains. They lost a third member of their team in early December. That's when a 28-year-old Lithuanian architect named Zacharias Marchinovas simply died in his sleep. In January, which is the dead of winter, they entered the foothills of the Himalayas, some say the Himalayas, either way is correct. Uh, Now, the winter there was not as bad as what they had experienced in Siberia, but the men were in far worse physical shape at this point in their journey. They climbed up and down snow-covered ridges and valleys without any climbing gear. As you can imagine, the conditions were brutal, and the worst peak of them all took six days to go up and down. It was during this particular descent that a 42-year-old Polish member of the team, a guy named Anton Paluchewicz, vanished while they were lowering him down. They later went around and realized that he had lost his life by falling into a deep chasm. They never recovered his body. It was just a few days later when the remaining men crossed into India and were spotted by six soldiers and a non-commissioned officer. Now They had to walk a few more miles to be picked up by a truck, But that was nothing compared to the long incredible journey that they had just completed. It was their first time on wheels since that dreaded Russian train ride that took them to Siberia in the first place. As you'd expect, the British troops cared for and fed their survivors well. They were infested with lice so all of their body hair had to be shaved off and burned along with all of their clothes and furs. They spent nearly a month recovering in a hospital in Calcutta, and the four survivors went their separate ways and never, ever saw each other again. Now, if you have read Slav's book titled The Long Walk from 1956, you probably noticed that I skipped perhaps the most unbelievable claim of the book. That is that Slav said that during their descent from the Himalayas, they spotted two tall creatures Covered in fur. That's the so called Yeti or Abominable Snowman. Now, this claim, coupled with his account of traveling through the Gobi Desert for nearly a month without water, and of course successfully climbing the peaks of the Himalayas without any climbing gear, you know, climbs that even the most experienced climbers would find difficult, has always brought claims that this book was a fake. Now, Up until his death in Nottingham, England on April 5, 2004, Slav stood by the story and insisted that every detail was true, but recent facts have been uncovered that bring incredible doubt to the legitimacy of this story. First, a BBC investigation in 2006 of the Russian and Polish archives found out that he had not been imprisoned on trumped-up charges. Instead, Slav was sentenced for the killing of a member of the Soviet secret police. The documents, some of which were written in Slav's own handwriting, show that he was released from the Gulag in 1942 as part of a general amnesty program for Polish soldiers. That means that he probably never escaped, and even if he had, he never made the journey that he has always claimed. But back in 1942, a British intelligence officer in Calcutta named Rupert Mayne interviewed three emaciated men that claimed to have escaped from a prison in Siberia and did make that incredible journey. Mayne never, ever recorded the names of the three men, but was certain that the book, The Long Walk, was the same story that he had been told at the time. So if in fact the journey was made... Yet the recently uncovered records show that Slavomir Ravitch never made the escape, then the big question is, who did? Recently, in 2009, a man named Witold Glinski came forward and said that he, in fact, was the one that made the incredible escape. Glinski claims that he knew his story was stolen by Ravitch, but he wanted to forget the war and just move on with his life. And his story is basically the same with a few minor changes. First of all, and most obvious, there was no encounter with the Yeti. He also said that Christina actually died from gangrene and that a guide took them through the Himalayas, avoiding the high peaks, and then on into India. He did note that he never knew much about the men that he traveled with. So there you have it. A story thought true for more than 50 years is filled with unanswerable questions. Some have suggested that Ravitch read of Glinsky's story in government files and then wrote the book based on those facts. Others have suggested that the ghostwriter of the book, a guy named Ronald Downing, embellished Ravitch's escape quite a bit in an effort to sell more books. Big shock there. Then there's also the possibility that both Ravitch and Glinsky made the same journey together, but were not aware of it. And that's because some people have suggested that Ravitch changed his name. Or maybe Glinsky is taking claim to Slav's story now that he's deceased and he can't defend himself. Or there is the possibility. Well, I'll let you uh, come up with your own questions and decide what happened, if it ever happened. But this is definitely not the end of the story. I just found out that Peter Ware has directed a movie called The Way Back, based on Slav's book. It's scheduled for release this fall and stars Jim Sturgis as Slavomir. Uh, Colin Farrell and Ed Harris also star in the movie. Of course, all the names have been changed. Uh, for example, Christina has supposedly been renamed as Irina. Useless? Useful? I'll leave that for you to decide. And now for a few words from our retro sponsor.
0: The Granite Furniture Company brings you the Hall of Fantasy. Listen now to original tales of the imagination and some of the classics of the supernatural as we take you down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy to the mysterious realms of the unknown. These are stories of eerie and fantastic thrills brought to you by your friends at the Granite Furniture Stores. You know, spring is practically here and the centennial summer is not far away, so now's the time to cheer up your home with something new from the Granite Furniture Company. You'll be amazed at how easily you can improve the beauty and comfort of your home with small items here and there, such as a new floor lamp, a new lounge chair, a table or so, or some other seemingly unimportant item. The Granite Furniture Stores in Sugar House, Murray, and Provo are daily receiving new stocks for spring home redecoration. And now you may choose from these delightful new things at prices well within your budget. Go in tomorrow and see for yourself. And be sure to listen a little later in tonight's program for an important announcement from the Granite Furniture Stores in Sugarhouse, Murray, and Provo.
2: That commercials from the March 9, 1947 episode of the Hall of Fantasy Radio Mystery Show, as they mentioned, uh, the episode was titled "Death in the Bayou," and the series originally aired on KALL Radio in Salt Lake City, and eventually ran nationwide from August 22, 1952, until September 28, 1953. Now I was surprised to find out that the Granite Furniture Company is actually still in business. It was founded in 1910 by a group of 10 Sugarhouse, Utah residents. So it's currently celebrating its 100th anniversary in business. At one point, they had three stores in the Salt Lake City area. That was in Provo, Sugarhouse, and Murray. Uh, The Murray store was destroyed by fire in 1961. And the one remaining store was opened in April of 1989 in West Jordan, Utah. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for like to call News of the Weird Past. Our first little tidbit goes back to October 18th, 1945. And there it's reported that a 39-year-old motorist named Russell Moran was killed in a freak car accident in Port Huron, Michigan. It seems that another car, driven by Mike Casser of Detroit, crashed into the rear of a horse-pulled hay wagon. The horses then broke loose and raced down the road. Moran, unfortunately, was driving in the opposite direction and hit one of the horses head-on. A hoof went right through his windshield and killed him instantly. Our next little tip is dated November 24, 1952, where it's reported that a Lake Wisconsin resident named James T. Mullane was rolling a cigarette when he heard what sounded like a rifle shot in his home. It's enough to make anybody jump. But it turns out that a two-pound fuel cap had ripped a hole right through his roof and kitchen ceiling and landed in a garbage bag. Amazingly, the bag was not ripped at all. The cap was traced back to a jet that had just taken off at nearby Mitchell Field in Milwaukee. Apparently, it was not locked in properly during the refueling. And Their last little tidbit goes back to November 11th, 1959, where it's reported that U.S. Secretary of Labor James P. Mitchell made the promise back in April of 1959 to eat his hat if the number of people at work rose above the 3 million mark in October. Well, it actually rose to 3,270,000, so he kept his promise and ate his hat in public. But this particular hat was quite tasty because it was made of mocha cake molded into the shape of a fedora. Now, if you're curious, the number of people out of work currently in the U.S. today is 14.6 million people.
1: Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances – shop for financial products and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And now the answer to today's question of the day. And i had asked you which classic TV show titled each of his episodes with the words, The Big. It was always The Big Something, such as I said, The Big Infant, The Big Pill, The Big Girl, and it goes on and on. Well, the answer is... Dragnet. Uh, The original series ran from December 1951 until August of 1959, and all but two of its 276 episodes began with the words, The Big. If you're curious, the two episodes that didn't were the first episode, The Human Bomb, and the 21st episode, which was titled 22 Rifle for Christmas. Now, the show is most famous for the catchphrase, Just the Facts, Ma'am, and it turns out that was never, ever said during the entire run. The closest was probably something like, All we want are the facts, ma'am, or All we know are the facts, ma'am, but they never said, Just the facts, ma'am. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story titled The Greatest Escape Ever, as well as our Question of the Day on Dragnet, listening to our retro sponsor from the Granite Furniture Company, and the news of the weird past tidbits on the motorist killed by a horse's hoof, the falling fuel cap, and the day James Mitchell ate his hat. If you'd like to read more true stories just like these, please be sure to get a copy of one of my books. They are Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart, and both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller, online, and from your local library. Now, if for some crazy reason you'd like to contact me, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name, or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. And lastly, as always, I'd appreciate it if you could log into iTunes and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub
1: trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want
2: to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.